Hey everyone, this is Matt and welcome to another Overflow Pod in our series on the goodness of God as we go through Psalm 23 verse by verse. And we're on verse 3 where it says, He restores my soul. And if you missed the last pod, you need to listen to that one before you go into this one, because that's kind of like part one and this is part two. And in that pod, we learn that the soul is the part of me that thinks, that chooses, that feels. It's what makes you, you. And we saw the three primary ways our souls are damaged through unaddressed grudges, through unconfessed guilt, and unprocessed grief. So how does Jesus restore our soul? He does it in three ways. When we're hurt by others, the first way he restores our soul is that he turns our hurts into holiness. And what I'm saying is, is that God brings the good out of the bad, the good out of the evil. He turns things around because the stuff that happens to you isn't all good. <laughs> There's a lot of bad stuff that happens to you. But Jesus transforms it. He brings good out of evil. Romans 8, 28, one of the great promises in the Bible. If you don't memorize this verse, you need to do that. Romans 8, 28, it says, We know that in all things, the key word there is in. <laughs> we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, let me stop right there. This isn't a promise for everyone. It's only a promise for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that not everything that happens to you is good. There's a lot of bad things that are happening to you. Decisions that you made that are bad. Decisions that other people made for you that are bad. There's diseases. There's all kinds of accidents. You see, God is not some silly optimist who sings every day, the sun will come out tomorrow. No, no, no. The sun doesn't always come out tomorrow. That's reality. That's the difference between optimism and hope. You see, hope is based on a certainty, but optimism is based on wishful thinking. The verse, let's go back to that. We know that in, in all things, God works for the good. It's not all good, but God says, I can take even the bad things that people do, that they do to me, against me, and I can use them for good. I can even take your own sins and bring good out of them, your own mistakes. God can take our own weaknesses and our damaged will and our damaged mind and our damaged heart and our damaged emotions, the way we think, and he can work that out for good. Now, everybody else, can they do that? Of course not. God specializes in bringing good out of bad. He turns our hurts into holiness. You know, sitting down this morning, I just start thinking of all the different ways God uses bad things in our lives for the good in our lives. I made a couple of things, list of things here. He turns our wounds, things that hurt me into wisdom. You're a lot smarter after you've gone through some stuff. He turns our pain into gain. That's a common thing in life, right? He uses correction to bring me to perfection. He uses offenses to remove my pretenses. You're a lot more humble when you get criticized. He uses my bruises for good. They're not good. The bruises suck. <laughs> They're not good at all. But somehow he uses them for good. When others want to bash me, God uses it to bless me. That's the kind of God our God is. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He knows how to bring the good out of bad. Verse 28, all things work together for good. It's a wonderful promise but you need the next verse, verse 29, for it to make perfect sense. 
He uses everything for his purpose. Now, what's his purpose? His purpose is to build your character. And so he uses the conflicts and the crises in your life to turn you into the character that he wants, to shape you. He wants to make you like Jesus. Verse 29, God knew his purpose from the very beginning. He planned in advance that all of us in God's family would become like Jesus, his own son. See, God wants a family for eternity. He wants you to be his child. So he sent Jesus to show what a child of God is like. And you want to know what God wants you to become like? Look to the character of Christ. So God is far more interested in your character than your comfort. You know, people act like, well, I don't understand. Things aren't going good for me and I'm trusting God. Well, here's a question. Did God ever promise that everything will go your way? the way you want it to go? No, of course he didn't. Because you know what would happen if everything went your way? You would be a selfish, spoiled brat. Remember, this life is in preparation for the next. In heaven, there is no sorrow or suffering or sickness or sadness. There's no people throwing arrows at you. This is like preschool. It's the character development stage. And God wants you to grow up before you go to heaven. See, when you go through these tough times, You should never ask, why is this happening? I'll tell you why. Romans 8, 29, to make you like Jesus. Can't even ask the question, why now? The question you should be asking is, what? What do you want to teach me? What character development do you want me to grow like? God is far more interested in your character, what you're becoming, than he is your comfort. Yes, God wants you to be comfortable. Absolutely, he loves you. But he doesn't want to give you comfort at the expense of your character. It's like my kids. I'm not going to, I'm going to raise them a certain way, but I have to punish them. I have to discipline them and I have to work with them. I don't want them to stay stagnant. I want them to grow. I want them to have a good time always, but you know what? They got to put in work from time to time, right? More than often than we would want to. So you're going to be comfortable for trillions of years. And right now he wants you to become like Christ. So what is Jesus like? The perfect picture of Jesus is, you know, the fruits of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. It gives nine qualities in verse 23 and 24. The fruit of the spirit is love. So he wants you to be loving, joy, peace, patience. He wants you to learn all these things, goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. There are nine qualities there. When you look at those nine qualities, you know what they are, the perfect picture of Jesus. Jesus is total love, total joy, total peace, total patience. And so you can wake up every morning and say, well, Lord, I don't know which one of these you're going to teach me today. You know how he teaches you patience? Waiting. You ever sit in God's waiting room? You ever been in a hurry when God wasn't? I think the number one way God teaches his patience is the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles. (laughs) God often teaches you those qualities in the exact opposite situation. So you learn love when you're around unloving people. You learn joy in the middle of grief. You learn peace in the middle of chaos. And it's easy to be peaceful on a nice, empty, sandy beach on a beautiful day. Who couldn't be peaceful? But if God's going to teach you real peace, he'll put you in the middle of chaos. You know what that is for me? Having three teenagers. That's chaos. And the only 
And man, is he teaching me peace right now. Patience? Oh, yeah, that too. Dealing with three teenagers. Oh, gentleness? Why? Oh, a little bit. How God teach gentleness with people who annoy you to death. <laughs> Don't look at them, but you know who they are. He's teaching you how to be gentle, self-control. God says, I want to turn your hurts into holiness for the purpose of verse 29, which says again, God knew his purpose from the very beginning and he planned in advance that all of God's family would become like Jesus' son. Now God's first son is the firstborn of restored humanity. There's the word restoration. He restores my soul. We're all broken. We all have broken relationships, broken minds, broken emotions, broken wills. We're all broken. And God says, I want to restore humanity to the original position I created it to be in the Garden of Eden. So I'm sending Jesus to come and die for our sins. Now, Genesis 50 explains why God allows people to hurt you. Verse 20, he says, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, this is a quote from a guy named Joseph. And Joseph had every reason to have unaddressed grudges because his own family sold him into slavery. He was one of the youngest kids in the family and his older brothers didn't like him. They thought he was a pompous jerk. He probably was. They didn't like him at all, so they took him and threw him into a pit and told the father their father, that an animal had eaten him. But when he was in the pit, some slave traders came by and they sold their own brother to slave traders on their way to Egypt. So he's taken to Egypt and he's hired out as a slave to a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife is a seductive woman. Joseph was kind of cute. So she tries to seduce him and he's not going down that way because he has integrity. He can't go against Potiphar like that. He says, I serve the almighty God. So she's spurned. She's mad. She's scorned. What does she do? She screams and claims that he took advantage of her. Falsely accused, he's thrown into prison. First 40 years of his life, nothing has gone right. Some of you might identify with that. He's thrown into a pit. He's rejected by his own family. He's sold into slavery. He's taken to a foreign country. He's falsely accused and he ends up in prison. And that was exactly where he needed to be. The second half of his life looked a whole lot brighter and a whole lot different. Because out of that, through a series of circumstances, he's raised up to be the second most powerful man under Pharaoh in Egypt. The most powerful empire at the time. And he not only saves Egypt from a famine, but he saves all the Middle East from it. And when he finally comes face to face with his brothers many years later, when they come to buy grain... He says to him, you meant it for bad. Let's not beat around the bush. You don't like me. You meant it for bad. You meant to hurt me. You meant to kill me. But you know what? God's bigger than you. And God meant it for good. And God can bring good things even out of the bad. And so when we learn that, you will begin to rebuild your soul. The broken thoughts, the broken emotions, and the broken choosing and the decision making in your will. Number two, what about when we do wrong? What about when we sin, when we mess up? What about the unconfessed guilt? That's how we deal with grudges, but what about the unconfessed guilt? How does God, the good shepherd, deal with that? When we do wrong, the second way he restores our soul is that he takes our sins on himself. He's going to take your guilt. So you just have to hand it over. 
Jesus goes and dies on a cross, pays for all your sins, so you don't have to pay for it. This is the best news in the world. And so we call it the gospel, which is an old English word for good news. And Jesus takes all our guilt on himself and he gives us his goodness instead, which is called righteousness. And he gives us all of his goodness so that we can get into heaven, so that we can be a part of his family. Now, nearly 700 years before Jesus died on the cross, so that would be around 2,700 years ago, a guy named Isaiah was a prophet. And God told him in a very specific terms that he was going to send a savior to the world, a Messiah, to save all our sins, save us from our sins, to pay for them. So 700 years before Jesus, he gave him this prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse five and six, it says, he was wounded and crushed for our sins. This is Jesus on the cross. He was beaten and he took our punishment so that we might have peace. And through his wounds, our wounds are healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's past to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and sins of us all. Now, what I just read is the most basic fundamental truth of the Bible. If this wasn't true, there's no point in even listening to this pod because we wouldn't have anything at all if Jesus didn't come to pay for our sins. The most basic truth is that he did that and that everything you're going to do wrong in your life, including the stuff you're going to do tonight, tomorrow, next week, and 10 years from now, it's already been paid for. You just have to accept God's grace and his goodness. He's already paid for everything. This is what makes Christianity different from religions that are out there. Every religion has a list of things to do to get into heaven. Each religion says, this is our to-do list. And that's our list. Another religion says, this is our list of things. You need to pray in this direction. You need to say a certain amount of Hail Mary so many times. You need to go to this. You need to take this confession. Whatever. All the other religions in the world can be summed up by the word do. Christianity is summed up by the word done. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Now notice he didn't say I'm finished or what I'm doing is finished because he wasn't. He came back to life three days later and he wasn't finished and he's alive today. When he says it is finished, it is saying that you don't need to add anything to what I've just done. I died on the cross for you. You don't have to do these 10 things. (laughs) There's only one thing you need to do to get into heaven. It's humility, be humble, and realize that you're never getting there on your own. So you call out to God and say, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. That's what you say. You see, the sin that keeps you out of heaven is pride. I can do it by myself. I don't need anybody to save me. I'm good enough to get there on my own, really. A perfect place. I stopped being perfect 30 seconds after I was born. Nobody bats a thousand in this life. I've never seen anyone actually claim to be perfect. We all know we're imperfect. We all know we've messed up. But we say to God, God, we're going to trust you. So when you come to Jesus and you say, you're going to take my sins on you, what are you giving me in return? His goodness. You don't have to beg. Oh, please, God, please save me. No, you don't have to bargain. If you do this, God, then I'll do that. You don't have to bribe. I'll read my Bible every day. If you do this, beg, bribe, and bargain, you don't do any of those things. All you do is believe. That's it. And that's why it's called the good news. What's the best news? You can't get into heaven on your good works, but it's already been paid for. You just have to humbly admit you need a savior, that you're not good enough to go to a perfect place. 
You may be thinking, but Matt, you don't know what I've done in my life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't need to know what you've done because I know what Jesus has done is bigger than what you have done. The good thing is he died on the cross is bigger than any bad thing or all the bad things combined that you've done. That's why we call it Good Friday when he died. It's not good for Jesus, but it sure is good for you. Well, Matt, I've, I've asked God to forgive me. I just don't feel it. I don't feel forgiven. Well, maybe you don't fully understand it. You can't have him come into your life and not change you. If your life hasn't changed any, you might have gotten something else, but you haven't gotten God. Something as big as God can't come into your life and not change you. The more you understand grace, the more joyful you'll be. See, Jesus died on the cross as a criminal. That was the worst capital punishment available. It was humiliating death on a cross. But when they took him down, there was a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea who had a brand new tomb he had bought for his family. They often buried in the same tomb for decades, like kind of like a hole in the wall of a cave, and then they would just roll a stone in front of it or cover it up, and they would just reuse it. So Joseph of Arimathea was quite wealthy, and he offered his tomb to Jesus because he's not going to need it for very long. Think about it. What's a few days? Jesus is coming back to life, so why should I worry about it? Borrow for a couple days. I don't intend to die between now and then. 700 years previous, Isaiah says a rich man is going to provide him a tomb. It says, yet it was God's plan to cause him to suffer. It was God's plan. Who put Jesus to death? Not the Romans. Not the Jewish leaders. God did. Jesus said, I lay down my life. I voluntarily do this for you and for me. It was God's plan, Isaiah says, to cause him to suffer and make his life a offering for our sins, a sacrifice to bring forgiveness. But after his soul suffered many things, he will enjoy life and joy again. That's the resurrection. But my suffering servant, God says, will make many people right with God. He will bear all their sins. He willingly gave his life and was treated like a criminal, but he took the place of everyone who had sinned and he interceded for their forgiveness. So when Jesus died on the cross, he covered all your sins and forgave you for everything you've done. He's thrown them in the deepest part of the sea. It's a metaphor there. So why would you drag something out to remember that God has already forgiven and forgotten? If he's died for everything you've done, past, present, and future, why are you feeling guilt about something that he's already forgiven? When you keep feeling bad about it, even though you, even if you've already confessed it to God, what are you doing? What you're saying is, is actually Jesus, you're, what you did on the cross wasn't good enough for what I, for my sin that I've committed. That's ludicrous. It's unbelief. It's saying you, your work wasn't done. It wasn't finished. I need to finish it because you weren't enough. It's crazy when you think of it in that way. When you keep asking for forgiveness for something you sincerely asked for once is unbelief. Because Jesus gives completely, freely, and instantly with grace. So which ones weren't included when he forgave you your sins? None. None. So what about the third thing? So now that God's forgiven everything, your guilt, if you start to feel guilt, say, you know what? I'm not trusting in Jesus' forgiveness. Drop it. Your, your, your unaddressed guilt is, should be gone. 
Now, what about the third thing? We talked about guilt. We talked about grudges. What about grief when we experience loss? Third thing Jesus does is he feels my grief and he heals my heart. So why does Jesus feel my grief? Because he understands grief. He's been there. He experienced it. He came to earth, became one of us, and experienced all the loneliness that people experience. He experienced the betrayal that people experience, the rejection that we experience. And he came to feel my grief and heal my heart. The Lord is my shepherd. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4 describes Jesus as, he says, he was despised and rejected by others. You ever been that way? It hurts. Maybe you were despised at school. Maybe you were despised because of a handicapped or the color of your skin or because you're female or male or whatever. Jesus understands. He was despised. He was rejected. Have you ever had someone reject you, walk out on your life? Jesus understands. Closest person in people in his life heard him. Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by others. He was a man of sorrows who endured much pain and suffering. He experienced deep grief, but we ignored him and we looked the other way. He was hated and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he was carrying on the cross and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. Wow. Love that translation. He understands, but he doesn't just understand. He doesn't just feel he heals. Psalm 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. I don't know what's broken in your heart. Some of you are going through stuff right now that I can't possibly understand. I'm sorry. But I'm glad you're listening to this because I can tell you that Jesus loves healing broken hearts. The fact of life is Jesus says, I heal and I feel and I care about what you're going through. So what are you doing with your grief? Maybe you just had a big breakup. Maybe you lost someone. Maybe you just got fired from work. Maybe you just go, does anybody like me? Does anybody want me? Does anybody even notice me? There's an ache in your heart. What do you do with that ache? You take it to Jesus because he heals and he feels. He understands it all. So how do we respond to these three things that Jesus does for us? Three ways. Number one, trust the good shepherd to forgive your sins. Start acting like all your sins are forgiven. Romans 3, 23 and 24, all of us have sinned, yet God declared us not guilty if we trust in Jesus Christ when his mercy freely takes away our sins. I just trust. I believe, I accept that my sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. Second thing we do, release your offenders and focus on the future. Release the people who have hurt you and focus on the future. Don't let them get under your skin anymore because your soul cannot be restored until you let go of the resentment in your mind and your thoughts. Let go of revenge in your emotions and let go of retaliation in your actions, in your decisions. Just let them go. Ephesians 4.30, get rid of all bitterness, forgetting each other just as Christ forgave you. Not only is that you should get rid of resentment, but you should also get rid of retaliation. Romans 12.19, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. God says he'll repay those who deserve it. And number three, team up with Jesus to carry your load. God never intended you for to go through life carrying all your grief, your guilt, your grudges your problems, your pressures, your stresses, your situations by yourself. Jesus says, I want to team up with you. I want to yoke up with you. 
And when he uses the word yoke, it's not talking about an egg yolk. <laughs> He's talking about like a farming imagery. If you have two oxen or two cattle and you put this piece of wood over them, and if you've ever held this yoke, it, it goes over both of the animal's necks. It's really light. It's like a beam. And then they pull the wagon together and it's so much easier to move. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30 says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry a heavy burden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke fits perfectly and the burden I give you is light. Now, when you read that, it sounds like, you know, you're, I'm forcing you to pull this carriage. Not really. Wait a minute. He's not putting something heavy on you. <laughs> it's not heavy. It actually weighs less than what you're trying to carry by yourself. Let's share it. You know, guess what? He can't, he'll help carry you. It will be half as difficult. The yoke is not to put more on you. It's to make life easier. So when you teen out with Jesus, he says, I'll help you pull the load. And by the way, when you're yoked up with Jesus, it's impossible for you to run the wagon into a ditch to get off track because he's not going to let you do it. You got to go in the direction he's going and you got to go at the pace he's moving. He will go at a reasonable pace than you will. (laughs) So no matter how weak you are or how exhausted you feel, Jesus can restore your soul. So turn it over to him and let him carry your burdens. So I hope that the good news that I've just talked about encourages you to let go of your unaddressed grudges, your unconfessed guilt, and the grief that you have, and let Jesus heal your heart. Don't just hold it in. Let it go. Well, that's it for today and for this podcast. God bless, and I'll see you in the next pod.